Welcome to Everybody Hates Me, Let's Talk About Stigma, a podcast hosted by Dr. Carmen Logie. She's a Canada Research Chair in Global Health Equity and Social Justice with Marginalized Populations and an Associate Professor at the University of Toronto's Factor in Wintosh Faculty of Social Work. Every week, the show features amazing speakers from around the world talking about stigma from research, lived experiences, and activism perspectives. Why should we care about stigma? What can we do about it? Thank you for tuning in. Let's start the show. Listeners, today I am so thrilled and excited to introduce Dr. Lisa Bolick. She has many illustrious titles. She is a professor of applied social psychology at George Washington University, the director of the Washington, D.C. Center for AIDS Research, Social and Behavioral Sciences Corps, and very exciting, the founding director of the Intersectionality Training Institute. She is world known for her work on intersectionality and stigma. She has a focus on masculinity, context, and resilience for black men's sexual health. She looks at intersectionality, stress, and resilience among black, lesbian, gay, and bisexual people. And she just does so much amazing work. Thank you, Dr. Boleg, for coming here today on our podcast. Oh, thank you. I'm so delighted to be here. Really excited to talk to you. And having listened to some of your podcasts, I'm really anticipating a great conversation with you. Oh, I'm so excited too. So I usually reflect on where I met somebody, but before I met you, I remember coming across one of your articles when I was a PhD student. So more than a decade ago, I don't remember the year of the article, so I'm hoping I'm getting the timeline right. But it said, when black plus lesbian plus women doesn't equal, it had like the, the, the doesn't equal sign, black mm-hmm. lesbian woman, it blew my mind. I read an article and I was like, what? You were just so clear and powerful. I was like, this person is so brilliant. And then I think I met you at a panel with Valerie Earnshaw at a behavioral medicine conference, but I don't remember it was. It was I think Texas. it was in San Antonio, ah. Texas. That's where that was. Oh, and yeah, yeah. We, we were on a panel together. And then since then, I just kind of bounced into you, but not nearly as much as I wish I had been able to, to uh, hang out with you because you seem like a cool person. Likewise. Regarding that article, I always say that I've never met a short title that I liked. (laughs) (laughs) I've never met anybody who could use the do not equal sign in a title. I was like, this is really cool. I'm always pushing the boundaries with the titles. And in that article in particular, I thought, you know, I wanted a provocative way to illustrate, you know, this concept and intersectionality that these things are interlocking and that it's not just addition and I wanted to show that symbolic you know using symbols and so I'm glad that the title alone um, worked for you yeah it totally sparked in me this interest to learn more about your work I know I just gave this big long introduction to you with your titles but I want to know if I'm in an elevator and I know it's a little difficult these days when you have to wear a mask in an elevator, but just imagine we're in an elevator, physically distancing. And I say, Dr. Boleg, what is your work all about? 
what what is your elevator story? Mm. I would say that I am using social and behavioral science research to push the needle and affect change. My work is ultimately geared towards social justice. And I want to say that, you know, but it's something I struggle with, particularly using research for social, like, why, why is that important? Mm. I, I think back to when I was in graduate school and the Institute of Medicine, which is this prestigious body in the U.S. and do a lot of informing, you know, they're a bridge between sort of federal researchers and policymakers. And they put out this book called Unequal Treatment. And it was all about racial discrimination in the U.S. and finding out, surprise, surprise, that people of color, even with health insurance, had worse health outcomes. And I remember going to the press briefing for this and I was thinking, you really need research for this? I mean, who doesn't know? Like, who doesn't know this? But what I learned is, you know, policymakers, at least in this country, if it's not documented, written in a book, published in articles, Mm -hmm. it's not real. It thinks that everybody knows. And so I see myself sort of in that tradition, Mm -hmm. documenting stuff that people, the average person you could stop on the street and could tell you about stigma and discrimination. And so I see my work as sort of supporting what everybody already knows. I love that about your work. And I also love how you span, obviously, because you look at intersectionality, which I want to get into with the stigma questions, but how you really look at different experiences based on different identities and and their intersection. But you look at racism, you look at LGBTQ stigma, you look at HIV stigma. If I'm going to show up and I really like DC and I've never been to your university, so I actually would love to show up one day and visit you. But if I was going to show up with my fancy time machine and say, we could physically distance. And I say, bring me back to the time and place where you're like, this study of these intersecting forms of stigma is where I want to focus my, my life. I imagine your passion. You seem very passionate about this. Where would we go in the time machine? We're, we're, we're going back to circa 1986 on the campus of Georgetown University in D.C. Mm-hmm. And it's there that I'm taking my first women's studies course Ah. with the fabulous Margaret Stetz, who is this wonderful, passionate, brilliant white woman and radical. But, you know, she gets under enemy lines because she talks a lot with her hands and she likes dresses and she has, you know, fingernail polish and she looks very (laughs) sort of disarming, right? But anyway, so it's my first and she says to me, so there's the class, but she also says to me, do you know about all these sort of black feminist do you know have you read Audre Lorde and Beverly mm-hmm. Smith and Barbara Smith and do you know all these people and, and bell hooks and I end up doing an independent studies tutorial with her just focused on black feminist literature nice. and it's there that I'm reading about intersectionality from people like you know Audre Lorde who is mm-hmm. just um, a hero of mine oh yeah because she's like I'm a black lesbian feminist warrior mother of a son blah, blah, blah. you know I, I love that about her um, and so her work and you read her work and she's talking about there's no such thing as a single single issue struggle because we don't live single issue lives without ever talking about which she never uses the word intersectionality and that for me was sort of the spark Her stuff is amazing. I was teaching this empowerment class for the last five years. Now I, you know, 
when you go on sabbatical, you often have to change what you're teaching, unfortunately. But um, I had that as the required reading was Sister Outsider, that book. And every week we would read a different chapter and apply it till today. And it is just so powerful that you could write something decades ago that still resonates with experiences of many people. And I just love I think it is the only book I've read. I should probably get another one of her books, but she's just really, and I remember reading Bell Hooks when, I think, I I don't know when I started reading Bell Hooks. I remember reading that one, Class Matters, maybe in women's studies, her book, Class Matters. It was. I'm just looking because I have. I, I, have I love that book, right and I, it blew me. It blew me away. It's like I'm like, why didn't I read this before? You know. Right. Oh yeah. Well, so imagine being an undergrad and reading all of these books. But what I didn't know was that what I'd learned there would travel with me decades into the future to inform the work that I'm doing now. I couldn't have seen that. So that's amazing. So from 1986 to now, I don't know how many years that is, but it's it's a lot of years. Oh, so you you have the same math skills I do then. No. Like, oh, just a couple years ago. It was just just a couple years ago. <laughs> it's yeah. So, so yeah. from your perspective, if you know if somebody was to say to you who just founded this incredible research center on intersectionality, first of all, maybe before we we go into it. How do you describe intersectionality to people who are not academics? Mm-hmm. Well, I always, always, always start with freed and slave person Sojourner Truth. So here she is, a black woman out of slavery in 1851, and she is speaking to a feminist conference, which means mostly white women in Akron, Ohio. And this is the place that she gives her famous Ain't I a Woman speech. You know, mm-hmm. that man over there says that, you know, women need to be lifted and carried over puddles, and nobody ever does that for me, and Ain't I a mm-hmm. Woman? And she just, you know, this sort of profound retort, ain't I a woman, ain't I a woman? And clearly she's a woman. Mm -hmm. The issue she's articulating is that she's a black woman that intersects Mm -hmm. with her gender. And so you can't understand her life as a black woman. You can't understand what that's like by just separating out, you know, one piece of them. And so Mm -hmm. I always start with, with her and I see her as the initial intersectionality theorist. Yes. And, and, you know, she, she is. And so where she's articulating. And so that's basically intersectionality. I see it as this critical framework, critical theoretical framework or analytical perspective that talks about how our sort of demographic positions or identities, however you want to call it, how those are linked such that you can't understand, you can't understand one absent mm-hmm. its connection with the other. And intersectionality is focused first and foremost on power and privilege and how it's based on those different intersectional positions and how it's structured differently. You know, a white middle-class woman in the U.S. has a very different experience than a black middle-class woman mm-hmm. or, you know, a black gay man versus, uh, you know, a white gay man and, and, and these positions shift and flow. And so that's intersectionality in a nutshell. Thank you for that. Breaking it down, I think it is so clear. And also how long people have been talking about this, yet it still feels like people still have a lot to learn, especially with the recent protests and people, white people, 
sometimes seem like in their responses to be surprised, which really shows that there's this gap in understanding, I think, intersectionality and racism and and, um, white people's role in producing and benefiting from the privileges of that. Well, I don't know if that's so much intersectionality. I would, you know, another term that I've been writing about a lot, which is a kind of big term, is this notion of epistemological ignorance, right? I Epistemology. That. <laughs> I, I've just been writing a book and that's my first chapter. It's so powerful. Oh yeah, God. this notion. So epistemology is just like, how do you justify knowledge? You know, mm-hmm. what, what does that mean? And so ignorance, when we think about ignorance, it, we usually think about this as something that could be rem- by education. Oh, if you just told people something, then of course, but epistemological ignorance with a lot of white people is this sort of willful ignorance. Yeah. Despite all of the information. I mean, the fact that people in the U.S. didn't are just learning about Juneteenth and they're just learning about slavery, that, that's willful ignorance. And epistemological ignorance also talks about ignorance being functional. It serves a function because then you can just be blind. Oh, well, that doesn't affect me. Oh, I don't know anything about that. I'm not involved in that. And so, you know, it, it really serves a purpose. Mm-hmm. Um, it, it reminds but, me of the burden of educating somebody about oppression, often being on the, the shoulders of the people experiencing the oppression because the other people don't have to learn about it. it yeah. I don't know if you're reading the same, I think it was Tuana's work on the epistemology of ignorance. Exactly. Absolutely. How women's reproductive organs and sexual organs were drawn differently based in medical literature, based on the politics at the time. So it was actually intentional ignorance was being produced in medical education. And, and I think obviously with, with racism, that, that spans medicine and history and, and every, every topic, but how ignorance is not innocent. We don't just, that's right. I just don't know about racism. Well, that's because you are willfully ignoring it or not, like taking it on you to learn about it or something. That's right. And But we're even seeing it, you know, I mean, it's certainly you can talk about it in terms of black, white people. But I mean, here in the U.S., we're even seeing it within black communities like, you know, like, well, why do we have to talk about black, black trans women mm. when, you know, when, when we're talking about Black Lives Matter? So you get to see that same sort of dismiss, that willful ignorance, you know, even within a group like, you know, black people who are on one hand protesting racism, but refusing to see how it intersects with sort of transphobia and, you know, and homophobia and all of this stuff. And so it's the same old stuff. I can't wait to read what you're writing on it because when I found that, I was like, oh, this explains so much, you know? So my first question, which is maybe an obvious question based on all of your your history of your work, but what do you say when people say there's so much other things in the world or why does this intersecting stigma really matter? Like, Why should we be focusing on this? What is your sort of explanation for the urgency of this work? Well, first, I want to say that I really struggle with the term 
the stigma part of it because of intersectional stigma. And part of that is likely sort of disciplinary, meaning I was trained as a social psychologist and Mm. and social psychology. A lot of our focus is on discrimination and we make a distinction between prejudice, which are sort of of negative sort of beliefs and discrimination, which is action behavior. Mm. And so in looking at a lot of the stigma work that comes out of sociology and, you know, Irving Goffman's notion of this sort of spoiled identity, that's where it gets problematic for me because we end up talking about stigma as something that resides in individuals. Ah. And that takes the focus off of the discrimination. And, you know, there's nothing wrong with being, you know, a black trans woman or black trans man, a Latin, Latinx trans man, or none of that. The problem is with the outsider, the external, the discrimination based on that. And so I'm concerned that we're talking about intersectionality stigma a lot of times in ways that keep the focus on the individual and sort of blaming them and mm-hmm. all the things they should do. And, and that, that, that disturbs me because you can't, because it's not modifiable. Mm-hmm. Right. Like in terms of where, where you're going to intervene, you're going to tell the person, oh, well, you know, you just stop being a black trans trans. Woman yeah, and- just cope better with the stigma. And it, just- you're right. It doesn't put the shift the gaze to all the people who are holding biases, prejudice and who are acting on those. I feel that so much of the stigma work doesn't look at the people. And, and then, you know, it's complicated because everybody has the ability to stigmatize or to hold bias against somebody, you know, whether it's somebody with less money or power or whatever it is in, in some sort of position than them. But it does, I think, get a lot of people off the hook, you know, by right. saying like, oh, look at, look at how stigmatized this group of people is. And then it doesn't say like, look at all the people doing all the stigmatizing who are benefiting from this, you know? Well, that's right. And yeah, everybody might have the equal opportunity to be stigmatized, but not everybody has the equal opportunity to basically make life and death decisions in enacting stigma. If your senator holds a stigma against this group, and they can enact laws and policies or this person who owns the store practices their stigma by making sure that every time somebody who looks like me comes in the door, they're walking, you know, the security guard is following me around. That's not the same as if I have stigma against, you know, I don't like, you know, that the person in that wheelchair, it's not, it's not the same, it's, mm-hmm. it, which gets us back to power and the sort of power to discriminate. That's why I sort of, when people's like, oh, well, everybody can stigmatize. Well, wait, yeah, that's true. Mm-hmm. But, you know, where does the power lie? Exactly. And, and how the power, when we think about power, it also thinks about the opportunities we have for not just surviving, but for realizing our potential, for living a healthy, happy life, for being yeah. able to marry who we want, shop where we want, go outside and run Without, Live where you want. That's yeah. right. Yeah. Walk around yeah. without being treated like who's being treated as dangerous and being over-policed. So there's so many ways that it actually inhibits freedom. So it's not just a negative attitude. I mean, That's right. That's right. You know, my, my partner is a black man, well-educated, retired and all of that. 
His experience going into stores in our neighborhood, um, or in particular the neighborhood next door, which is much richer and much wider, is just, you know, his day-to-day reality as a black man, because people aren't looking at class. And so he's constantly dealing, he'll walk in to pick up food and, you know, he's seeing people, you know, they're just on guard or they're um, following him around the stores or we have an alley in the back of our, our house. And I said to him once, why don't you take the alley to go to the gym? Cause that really would be the quickest way. And he says, really, you think that me as a black man walking behind our alley at 5am would be a good idea. Wow. Uh, you know, and so that's again, right. On many ways you can, yeah, he's got class privilege and all that, but he certainly does not have, you know, the sort of power to stop, like you said, I mean, sort of life and death type of type stuff when we're talking about this. And freedom to a freedom of movement. It's, I think people might not understand that even freedom of movement, freedom of riding public transit based maybe on your gender conformity or not, or walking down the street based on the color of your skin without being afraid something bad is going to happen. Totally. Constantly, vigilant, constant self-monitoring. It comes up in my, you know, one of the things that's so interesting to me about my research is I, I'm an HIV prevention researcher. And so most, many of my studies have been with black men. But if you do research that includes methods that like interviews and focus groups mm-hmm. that allow people to tell their stories and go beyond just checking sort of, you learn such amazing things. And so I'm doing work now on police brutality based on things we learned in our HIV prevention work. And one of the things I didn't know in DC, black men talk about um, stop and identify where they're minding their business there. You know, I'm thinking of a narrative of some guy, he's outside his grandmother's house with two other men and the police jump out and they want to see identification. What are you doing here? And so the men are talking constantly about the different things that they do, how they dress, how they walk, where they go, where they don't go to avoid these sort of interactions with police. So imagine living every single day Mm. with that type of of burden. I mean, this is insane. And how in your research findings, what are the impacts of this daily stress that, that people have described to you? Yeah, well, I mean, they describe, well, I mean, I think we use theoretical frameworks like Nancy Krieger's eco-social theory, which talks about how people literally embody discrimination and how that manifests in all kinds of health problems. And so one of the studies we're doing that, well, we're doing before COVID-19. <laughs> COVID, COVID, we're over you right now. <laughs> wish before we were COVID, COVID-19 <laughs> put a stop to that because we really wanted to understand there's quite a bit of research showing that a lot of increased cardiovascular disease risk in Black um, populations is linked to discrimination right and so and then you wonder well well how and this might this is one mechanism this constant you're always in fight or flight and that wears and tears on the body over time is sort of one way that you know discrimination mm-hmm. and injustice gets into the body to show all of these different health inequities that we see particularly in black and other racial ethnic minority communities in the u.s You've definitely convinced me that this is an urgent issue. And I hope, you know, that consciousness is rising about the need to consider the harms on health and human rights. 
Um, but wait, I got to stop you because this is where the epistemological ignorance, ah, right? It's not, it's not knowledge or consciousness yeah. alone, right? Yes. We know this. This is, we don't need another study to tell us this. I mean, right? there's ample research. Decades, decades. Of decades research. and decades of research. So that tells you, well, wait a minute, there's something else going on. It's not just about knowledge that would remedy this. I mean, and my God, look at what we're seeing now in terms of the assault on knowledge about COVID-19. Mm. I mean, clear facts. And so there are bigger forces at play, obviously. I'm going to come back to this when I'm asking you about the solutions. You really have given a lot of examples for the second question I was going to ask, which is, what does stigma look like? You've talked about it being something that's an everyday experience, walking in the store, deciding whether or not to walk on the, in an alleyway, deciding what to wear, deciding if you have to bring ID to stand on, a, on your front yard. Mm-hmm. Um, is there other examples you want the listeners to consider about what intersecting forms of stigma look like in your work that has struck you as being really important for? Well, I guess, you know, I think in, in work that I did, a study I did with black, gay, and bisexual men, and I think that's a, in another one of my papers with a really lengthy title. Although in this case, in this case, the brilliant title came from one of the participants. You know, once you've blended the cake, you can't take the, the parts back to the main ingredients or something like that. You know, I love notion. that. Isn't I that love cool? That. I know, but that wasn't me. Long, but, um, but, but not me. But, you know, this notion, you make a cake, once you put the eggs and the milk and the butter in there, you don't, you know, you and mix it all in, there's no pulling out the butter and all that. And I think, you know, in terms of thinking about black men and you know some people would say oh well you know by virtue of them being men you know they have this sort of privileged status compared with you know black women but intersectionality and intersectional stigma work shows that it's far more complicated than that Mm -hmm. because then it's sort of like okay what is the experience of black men at the intersection of different sexual identity statuses you know black heterosexual men versus black gay and bisexual men versus and then when you put in another layer of put in I guess another ingredient. Um, <laughs> another talk, ingredient. Yeah, I'm gonna I'm gonna work this cake metaphor to death. Um, <laughs> class, right? And so one of my studies, we're trying to understand. Okay, what is well, we're interested in discrimination. What does that look like when we look at it for black men at intersections of sexual identity? So heterosexual men, gay men, bisexual men, but also higher socioeconomic status and lower. Because I think we just we just don't know, mm-hmm. um, and so intersectional stigma is this really this way of sort of it brings the sort of complex focus on just how complex our lives are when you layer in these different demographics we have ingredients, yeah. <laughs> Yeah, exactly. I like that a lot because it it sounds like in some ways money and class might help, but it also sounds like in other times it doesn't. So it's interesting. It's not the solution isn't just address poverty because that doesn't necessarily address the specific types of anti-black racism or, you know, the, the way that that intersects with gender norms in society. And I think just adds this this kind of dynamic that we had to think, oh, if somebody um, who's wealthy is also experiencing racism, 
<laughs> you know, so it, it's a very interesting dynamic what you just said. Well, yeah. And I mean, I think in terms of another example of that would be maternal mortality in the U.S. where <sighs> Black women in the U.S., regardless of income, regardless of their educational level, have worse pregnancy mortality outcomes than white women with less education and less income. I am a huge Serena Williams fan. Like, I am the biggest Serena Williams fan. Serena, if you're listening, please come on this podcast. It would be a dream come true. And the fact that she almost died in childbirth because they didn't listen to her about her own body, and that's someone who's a multimillionaire, world-famous, still experienced racism in in childbirth. That's right. That's right. That's right. That's it, you know? Right. It's well, racism at, at the intersection of sexism because, the, you know, in ways that white women don't don't deal with that in the same way, which is not to say that, I, I, you know, I, if I had to guess, um, I'm sure poor women don't get treated much better, but their outcomes aren't the same. Yeah. Thank you. And I want to ask you the last stigma question before the wild card questions. Uh-oh. We're going to have some wild card questions so they can get to know the real you. But the last stigma question, and I'm really super excited that you're talking about this this ignorance that's kind of willful in some way or it's not an innocent sort of ignorance because a lot of times people will say oh we just need more information and I even wrote this article it, I had to change the title I, I didn't get away with having a long title like you I need to get some mentorship on that but the title was like information is not enough like it really isn't enough I just wonder when you think about the solutions, what, what somebody walking their dog listening to this podcast can do. I, you know, I know you work a lot on structural and policy level change too, but if you could consider kind of a couple of different solutions. So beyond the structural, because you know, I'm no. all big about structural. <laughs> Go for the structural and then I'll bring you down to more like our own maybe. Yeah. I, Cause I'm thinking something about our own, responsibility to not be willfully ignorant. You know what I mean? Right, right. I don't want to stop you from doing the structural because I know that's your jams. Yeah. Well, no, I think structure is important. I mean, I think that it's, you know, that laws and policies that are, that are enforceable, they matter. A law that says mm-hmm. that you cannot discriminate against this person in giving them a bank loan or where they can live based on the color of their skin or who they love. That is critically mm-hmm. important. And, you know, um, Nancy Krieger and her work on structural racism talks about how these structural things, and when I'm talking about structure, I'm talking about, you know, laws and policies and things like that, like mm-hmm. beyond the level of the individual. Why they're so important is because they are mutually reinforcing with individual behaviors, right? So if you live in a state that has a bathroom ban for transgender people, then that in turn informs how you think about trans people and how you treat your trans neighbor or what you teach your children about how you deal with people who are transgender or gender non-conforming. And, and so that's why I think structure really, really matters. Absolutely. So, so you're saying if there's a ban on transgender people using bathrooms, that might actually influence our own belief system. So it's sort of, sure. maybe it, it reflects our belief system because we obviously voted in as a majority, this person making the law, but now it can reinforce us being afraid because we never actually have the opportunity to, to have a different experience to, to right. you know, understand and, that, you know what, when you're, I mean, 
I go to a lot of gay bars, so all the bathrooms are all genders. So there's not an issue with everybody just using whatever bathroom is there. But I, you know, I guess for some cisgender, maybe straight people who aren't used to the gay club culture, they they just don't understand it's not a big deal. Like whoever is in the bathroom is in the bathroom. Well, right. But I mean, but clearly it's in this country, it's been a big deal with, you know, state legislatures mm-hmm. getting involved to fight over basically who gets to go to the bathroom. I mean, this is insane. But I think it means that, but if you look at something like and there's law and you don't challenge it you don't think about it that's your privilege right and so that allows this sort of injustice to continue and this so that's one level you know and I think these they're multi-layered but I think in terms of you know on the individual level I think that I remember when I was an undergrad I don't know how the contact hypothesis fared um, down the road but this notion it was this notion that if groups had more contact that that would solve a lot of problems but one of the problems was mm. that these groups have to interact as equals, right? Um. I can't be, you know, you can't be the white boss and inviting me to come to your house party because you're the boss. That's not the same sort of equal type engagement, right? Mm-hmm. We need to be friends where I come to your house, you come to my house, you know my kids, I know your kids, where I can check you, you can check me. And, and so I often think about, you know, what type of opportunities are there for different people to really sort of get to know each other across these differences because Mm. I think that these sort of this intersectional organizing and collaborations really where it's at Um, Mm -hmm. you know for me to understand that my struggles as a black woman are intricately tied with yours as you know a person with a physical disability and yours as you know a working class single mom and all you know Mm-hmm. I think those types of opportunities are really important. So really building, important. sort of planting seeds, maybe of solidarity, of understanding some of the, the larger forces that are behind a lot of different, yet there might be some threads that are similar, you know, between like how racism serves something and how transphobia and how classism and how ability, stig- disability stigma, things like that are... Yeah how we can see that there might be something that is larger that we could be fighting against. But see, this gets us back to the point we were talking about earlier about my problem with intersectionality stigma, because I think that when we talk about things like, say, racism, we think about just, you know, how the lives of racial and ethnic minority people would be better, right? We put the focus on them without looking at, like, what is the Mm. cost to white people from this system because it's not working out too well for white people. I, mm-hmm. I think that's why I'm also interested in sort of turning the mirror around because so much when we're talking about, you know, whatever discrimination it is, it's really focused on sort of the victims. And I, and I understand that, but I think we also need to know like, okay, who's like you said, who's benefiting and how and, we all lose, how we all lose, like white how people, everybody everybody loses right. with racism. Everybody loses and, with homophobia. Everybody we're losing, loses. We're losing it's people's right. potential. If we're really losing people from, from living their lives freely and, who knows all the things that people could be if we weren't. I think about this all the time, right? Like when I see young black kids and, you know, on the corner and I think this person over here could have the cure 
for cancer. Mm-hmm. But because of the color of their skin, there's so, in this country at least, there's so many things that are just, so many opportunities where mm-hmm. that person doesn't even get the opportunity to thrive, right? And so this young kid who's a genius, but you don't know it because you just think yeah. he's a thug, this kid could save your grandma. Absolutely. That's, you know, I mean, it's, it's or, or just like, holy cow, this person over here could be your best friend. Turns out you both are like, you know, computer nerds or something like that. But they're like these superficial differences that are just meaningless. I saw last night we went to a drive-in. There was a drive-in theater oh, inside wow. out. Is our LGBTQ film festival, and it was canceled because of COVID. And they, in a drive-in, uh, we went, and our friends have like a jeep, and there was no roof and everything. We watched Todger Call, and I've seen it before. I saw him perform live in Baltimore in the fall. It was amazing. I don't know if you've seen the the Todger Call on Netflix. I have. It's I have really it. worth watching. It okay it actually made it me so emotional again because. There's this one clip, and it's interesting how you can watch something more than once, and you, you learn something new every time, about a young black kid who's a dancer came up to him. And it was so emotional. And he just said, oh, my gosh, I hide that I'm a dancer because I don't want to be made fun of, but I see you, and I see what I can be. Yeah, totally. Yeah, that's what I'm talking about. Yeah. And so he's, Todd Erick's a black man, gay man, grew up in Texas, didn't have any representation of himself anywhere. So now has actually moved from just being a performer to also being an advocate for like LGBT rights and things like that. But just, but it's just interesting, all the people that come up and especially, he said he especially pays attention to young, young people and young boys and especially young black boys who are dancing and are maybe doing things that aren't expected of them, right? In this this sort of way we put people in boxes, you know? Yeah, I mean, just wasting potential. (sighs) Yeah. So I know we're almost at our end, and I want people to know, I mean, I think they get a sense of who you are, but beyond your work, I'm going to have three very fast wild card number one. What are you binging on Netflix right now? I went back to The Office, the, the U.S. version of The Office on Netflix. Somebody, somebody else told me that. I've never watched it. Oh, it's been so much fun. And so I, I, I don't have the patience to just watch TV, so I always have to be doing something. And so I have found since the pandemic, turns out, who knew? I am absolutely obsessed with puzzles, jigsaw puzzles. Oh. I'm, on my, I'm, I'm on my 11th one. And oh, so my I watch, gosh. I watch old um, episodes of The Office, and I've been catching up. That, and then, um, and I'm waiting for Schitt's Creek, which I love so much. I love Schitt's you, Creek. I can't tell you how much I love that. And so I, so when I'm not watching The Office, I'm like, because I'm... Um, Shit's Creek season six comes to us on Netflix, I think, in October. So oh, I watched it. Watching. I watched it because we have it on CBC because it's Canadian. Yes, so. I know. What's so funny is every episode, Dan Levy, every single episode we talk about Shit's Creek, I plead okay. for Dan Levy to come on this podcast. Oh, Dan Levy, okay. we're going to hashtag you again. We're going inst- oh, yeah. to tweet you. Please, because we love Shit's Creek. It's oh my god, what that show is just yeah. So yeah, so The Office and um, and Shit's Creek and puzzles. Okay, puzzles. You're gonna have to. Okay, I need to 
off off the podcast, I'm going to find out a little bit more about that. Number two, where would you go and who would you take for dinner anywhere in the world, anybody living or dead, pre-COVID or post-COVID? Well, yeah, well, it would have to be. Post-COVID plus vaccine. So. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, let's see, living or dead. I mean, my partner is always uh, where he is, where I want to be. I would take my sister to... Florence. My sister is, uh, she's one of the loves of my life. She is 12 years younger. She lives in the Bahamas where I'm from. Oh, and, I love the Bahamas. Well, I didn't okay, know you're from right. there. Yes, ma'am. And when we were, um, my partner and I were in Florence about, oh God, it's only been three years ago. We found this, well, we didn't find it. We were, we, we were lucky enough to be connected with this American woman who's a friend of a friend. And so she knew all of these places and she took us to this restaurant oh my god oh my god this restaurant in this plaza with this food they make this sort of tortellini i didn't even think wow. i like tortellini i can't even tell you italy is so it's... magical it was oh. a surprise we i went there once to venice and i was surprised i had no idea it would be so beautiful oh my god so yeah i would i would hang out with janelle in this outdoor restaurant eating pasta oh. and drinking uh, yeah but i, I mean, mean there are a lot of his, you know there are a million historical yeah figures, but when but you go i want you yeah. to take a selfie and send it okay. to me okay and then okay. tell me the name of the restaurant because that's I, how Okay, <laughs> yeah, I, I have it written down somewhere. I, I definitely have it. Oh, I also think that COVID is helping us reflect on our next vacations. <laughs> so we can be making detailed lists, at least for me. Um, oh, yeah. So my last question to you, Dr. Boleg, is what is a piece of advice that has been helpful to you that you'd like to share with the listeners? Probably two pieces. One comes from my mother, and it was always never be afraid to ask because all I can say is no. And basically, that, now usually that was in the context of curfew. And I wanted to, <laughs> I wanted to stay out later when I was a teenager, and her answer was always no. But it's been really, really a great piece of advice because I don't fear being told no, and so I will ask for anything, like in a professional realm. All they can say is no. They're not going to kill me. I don't. I don't really care. That's amazing. Uh, yeah, that, I think that's that, that's the one that has served me the best. I think. That's and you said there was a second piece, so I'm just. Oh, gonna... the second one I think probably comes from my my mentor Jean Tashan, um, who's um, she's retired and she's just wonderful. One of my one of my mentors, Margaret, who I spoke to from Women's Studies, one. And I think because I like many of people, I'm sure you've had on your podcast, I'm a perfectionist and all of that. And she would say to me, "Dare to be adequate. Your your adequate is wow. you know, when I'm re reworking a piece and I want it perfect." <laughs> <laughs> just, you know, making myself completely crazy. And I, I know it sounds counterintuitive, but it's sort of, there's something freeing about just like, you know what, this is good enough. And yeah, knowing when something is good enough is really an art. Isn't it? It is yeah. amazing. Yeah. Thank you so much. I am so honored that uh -huh. you came on the podcast. You're so fantastic. Thank you. And I'm honored that you had me and that you invited me. This was so fun. And I'm just delighted that you have this podcast. It's a way to disseminate knowledge about all sorts of different topics and in a way that's so fun and accessible. So congratulations and thank you. Thank you so much. 
Thank you for listening to Everybody Hates Me, Let's Talk About Stigma, a podcast hosted by Dr. Carmen Logie. Join us next week for more inspiring and motivating conversations with stigma leaders from around the world. If you want to listen,